Welcome to Kibion Liberty. This week, we talk with Ladan Bormand, a human rights activist from Iran, and she's going to tell us why it is that the Iranian people are rejecting that toxic stew of state Islam and Marxist ideology. Check it out. Ladan, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. There is so much to talk about. I spent the last week watching some of your speeches and, and reading articles that you've published, and I, I've learned so much about, about what's going on internally in Iran amongst the people and, and the ideology of, of, of sort of uh, the Islamic State. And I want to get into all of that, but if, you, if we could just start with a basic uh, a biography of, of who you're associated with and, and what, what work you're focused on right now. Um, I'm a senior fellow right now at a foundation that uh, my sister and I created um, in the name of, uh, in memory of our father, Abdurrahman Boruman, uh, a foundation or center for human rights in Iran. Um, this is a, an organization we created in 2001. Uh, and its um, its main objective is to document um, and tell the story of all the people uh, whose lives were taken by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, no matter who they were, no matter what they thought, no matter their nationality, religions, or even the crimes that were uh, they were accused of because the Islamic uh, Republic not only kills people outside the country by exploding bombs, uh, but also their judicial system uh, is basically based on the systematic denial of due process of law. So even if someone is accused of a crime, a real crime, theft or uh, murder, they don't get the right of defense. And therefore, you never know if they are really um, guilty or not. So we consider them victims. You have a project um, that means hope in Farsi? Yes, this is the name of the memorial. Yeah. So it's, this is an online memorial where we tell the story of each individual, both in English and in Farsi. So it's really labor intensive. And we we explain how many human rights for each case have been violated. So the Farsi section uh, targets the Iranian and wants to teach them due process, why it matters, why it's important, and what are their human rights. The English section is um, bearing witness so that the world could see uh, what the Islamic Republic is doing to its own people and to people around the world. You know, Joseph Stalin, the brutal <coughs> dictator, supposedly said that um, one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. And I thought of that when I was looking at your website because you put a face and a story and, and the, you know, the family that's devastated behind every one of these individual atrocities. And I think it's a very powerful way to get people to pay attention yes. to abstract things like rule of law, like what, what is that yeah. all about? Exactly. And so they, they will see at 
each level, at each stage of the arrest, the interrogation, what are the, uh, the human, uh, human rights that are violated. And um, in a way, what we do also, you know, when the trial of strength is so unfavorable to, to the victims, uh, be becoming apathetic, um, depressed, and doing nothing um, becomes a sort of, um, um, you have no other choice. Yeah. This uh, truth-telling platform that we provide to the families, it's a way also uh, of transforming them from a passive victim into an active militant for uh, rights and justice. So it has also a, um, a th therapeutic um, aspect to it, yeah. in addition to its educational aspect. Our, um, I'm jumping ahead, but uh, I, I think it's relevant to this. Our um, social media platforms, particularly encrypted ones, are they widely used in Iran, or is, has the regime tried to stifle that? Oh, we have been um, six or seven months after we went public. We were we published uh, the the website. Uh, we were filtered. Uh, so, but. Um, Iranians are very technologically savvy, and those who are interested uh, can reach us. Um, we have a form that is very secure, so family members can send us their information and their stories uh, through a form uh, that could be anonymous. We have a database that is designed for human rights violation an analysis. So as you said, uh, we try to combine the storytelling and the statistical aspect of it for the future, for transitional justice and, uh, you know, for yeah. accountability. Yeah. Well, let's let's take a step back and and get into your personal story because I, um, <coughs> I I read this morning that you were on the ground during the revolution in 1979. But but uh, talk talk a little bit about your your family upbringing and your studies in Paris and and how you got to this position of of defending uh, the rule of law and de liberal democracy. Um. Uh, you know, our father was a pro-democracy militant under the Shah. So he was in the liberal opposition to the Shah and a staunch uh, Mossad lover, you know, the prime minister who, 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 were, um, who was um, dismissed or um, pushed aside by a coup supported by uh, uh, Great Britain and the United States. And I think that was one of the biggest mistakes of U.S. foreign policy at the time. Uh, so we grew up in a family in critical towards um, what was going on, but rationally critical and very supportive of freedom and um, uh, liberty. When the revolution happened, Obviously, at the beginning, um, my father was really favorable to change, but they wanted constitutional reform and that the king would not govern but only reign, which is um, like the, uh, the Queen of England. And, uh, uh, but things turned other, otherwise. So during the revolutionary transition, the national, nationalist liberal opposition that were pro-Mossadegh split on either are we supporting Khomeini or are, are we not supporting? And one of its leaders was uh, Dr. Shapur Bakhtiar, 
who was a social democrat who had spent six years in prison during the Shah. And, um, and he said, no, a religious uh, tyranny is worse than a, a secular dictatorship. We have the opportunity, the Shah is giving us the opportunity um, to reform the constitution, to democratize, to start pre-elections. So he accepted the uh, offer by the Shah to become uh, the transitional prime minister. My father rallied him. And obviously Khomeini had other plans for Iran and he tricked the population with revolutionary um, discourses. And Bakhtiar ruled for 37 days in Iran. And these are the only 37 days where the pre press was free, political parties were free, and people, instead of organizing, and he was really conjuring them, organize in political parties, start your labor unions, let's organize the elections, and if the Ayatollah wants to a part in this, he can organize and, uh, and uh, you know, participate in the elections. But obviously, the Ayatollah had another plan. For him, he was, um, he was chosen by God. So either people will accept him or they wouldn't accept him. He was not going to run for elections. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, Dr. Bakhtiar, was his government was toppled in February 11th, and he went into hiding. My father at the time was in Paris. He had been doing some, co uh, uh, trying to, to establish communication lines between the Ayatollah and, um, and Dr. Bakhtiar. And uh, I was a student in Paris at the time, but during the revolutionary three, four weeks, I mean, a week after Khomeini went back to Iran, I went back to Iran working with a French television. Mm -hmm. as a translator at the time. So this is this allowed me, because as a very young uh, female student, I couldn't go around and do my studies of the revolution. So I thought that is a good cover for me to go around. So I helped them, but at the same time, I started to interview different social categories about, because in another, I have to open this uh, parenthesis, during the... A stay of Khomeini in Paris. Um, there, I don't know if you remember the first president of the Islamic Republic. His name was Bani Sadr, and he was also before becoming a partisan of Khomeini. He was a pro-Mossadegh militant. So I knew him. He was a friend of my father, and he had a library. In this library, I found Khomeini's political program, his Mein Kampf, basically. When I read it, I was you know, completely horrified. Because up I, until this point, you were vaguely sympathetic. To I was, to you know, I, my my point was, I didn't understand why Khomeini and Bakhtiar couldn't reach a consensus if both wanted democracy. I didn't understand. Yeah. And I mean, three weeks before Khomeini left Paris, I was, I've, I found this book and I read it and I asked Khomeini, uh, Bani Saad, Mr. Bani said, this guy doesn't want democracy. This is a t tyranny. He is, uh, and um, Bani said, said, no, Mr. Khomeini has changed. He has evolved. Um, maybe you're younger than me, but in the, the vocabulary of um, 1968, um, you know, young people's uh, revolts, 
evolving was very fashionable. And I thought, the guy is nearly 80 years old. The vocabulary of 1968 couldn't apply to him. I asked Khomeini, could we ask, I asked Banisat, let us ask the Ayatollah if he is interested, what is this? And if he has changed his opinion about the future of Iran. And so Banisat said, uh, okay. And we were a, co- a bunch of young people translating um, um, foreign press for for Khomeini at the time. And I wrote 13 questions, uh, very handwritten, about the, the parliament, the, repres- the issue of representation, the vote, and all of this. And we handed over to Khomeini in, in our last meeting, and his... Uh, his son-in-law came out and handed back my questions to me and said, um, the Ayatollah is not responding to these questions. I made a scandal. I said, why? He said, this is not the right time for that. I was very wrong, young, inexperienced, and also ignorant to some extent. And I said, I thought, this doesn't sound right. And that was the end of my relationship with um Mr. Banisad, I came out. What I regret at the time is that maybe because there were a lot of press at the time in this vicinity of Khomeini's um, residence in the outskirts of Paris, and I thought maybe I should have gone to the media and talked about this issue. But I was too shy. Yeah, you know, yeah. you are too young, too uh, shy. So how old were you at this point? Hmm? How old I were think you? I was 22. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's not much yeah. for fighting such a fight alone. Uh, but then I went to, uh, Khomeini went to Iran, went back, and I went back a week later, and th- the following f- s- 48 or 76 hours were the time where the government of Dr. Bakhtiar was toppled. Yeah. And I was walking in the streets of Iran, and what was what what I learned from this experience is that um, you know I knew what Khomeini had in mind, and I was seeing what people were fantasizing about what Khomeini had in mind. Mike, the questionnaires I had for different for teachers for um, uh, workers in the uh, in the factories, people were describing what would look like a representative democracy. And they were saying the um, imam will bring us this. But I knew the imam had something else. So I realized that in popular movements, it's not what every single individual participant has in mind that will be the outcome. The outcome is what the leadership has in mind. And the way you allow the leadership uh, you, uh, the the freedom you give to the leadership. This was a big lesson I learned from from that experience. Was was he um, a charismatic leader that had the ability to communicate in a way that everyone could just fill in the blanks? Yes. Based on their values and not his. Yes. So um, w- one of the major issues of Iran at the time uh, was the lack of and the weakness of the political culture of the elite. Yeah. You know, um, the intelligentsia was very much under the influence of Marxism-Leninism. And if, if you remember in Marxist worldview, politics is, is a superstructure. Yeah. 
and it doesn't matter. Laws and government and constitution don't matter. And um, the, the, the main leaders were engineers, not lawyers, you know. So basically, they fell into the trap very easily. And Khomeini would say, it's freedom within the uh, framework of Islam. But what Islam he was talking about, you know? Yeah. So he didn't lie to people, but he didn't spell out what he wanted to say. Well, he was using, as I understand it, uh, he was using the word Islam in a radically different way than perhaps people were, were hearing it. Yes. And I, I'd love to get into that because this, this toxic mix of, of political Islam and, and sort of radical Marxist revolutionary philosophy um, this was a new thing. This was this, and this is where he was coming from. Explain all of that, because I don't. I suspect most of my viewers don't know the difference between political Islam and religious Islam. Yes. First of all, let's um, remember, or you know, let's say that in traditional Shiism, um, it's a little bit like um, uh, Christianity, a little bit, which means that. Uh, the the big ayatollahs are supposed n not to to meddle in politics because in politics um, there is corruption and in order to save religion you have to wait until the twelfth imam comes back at the end of the time Th this was the main um, so a strict separation we, we not would strict because they have the sharia. And the Sharia was a problem for the clergy. And I think it's, it was on this that Khomeini was able to mobilize part of the traditional clergy to, uh, to, to, gain, to gain their support uh, because society was modernizing in Iran. And um, so the traditional clergy were a little bit worried because their relationship with this corpus of traditional laws and regulation was not a critical approach of their own corpus. So they were watching the society modernizing and they had no response for how to reconcile modernity and religion. So there was a malaise that, has, that had started from the beginning of the 20th century and it was continuing and they, the traditional religious um, um, elite had no response for it. In the meantime, many young people in the 60s were attracted to communism. And some part of the religious groups had thought, we need to, we need to um, engage with these people. And as they were engaging with these people, they adopted a lot of their paradigms. And that's why the Shah at and the Shah che, at the che, beginning. You mentioned Che Guevara was very cool, and, and it, he was one of their intellectual or revolutionary heroes. Yes, Che Guevara, but also Fanon, all these um, um, these people, uh, the third world leftist uh, people, and we had some um, secular um, secular um, intellectuals who who adopted all the, the intellectual structure of Marxism, but they turned it into, um, they gave it 
Islamic names, you know. Uh, so uh, even the word Hezbollah, the political word Hezbollah, was coined by a secular intellectual, Khomeini adopted it in a way. Um, and the Shah at the beginning let these people work, whereas people like Bakhtiar were in prison, liberal Democrats, and they were not allowed to, to get even near the university. The underground literature of the Soviet Union was nourishing the, the generation. And the Shah thought maybe this Islamic approach, modernization, could neutralize them or stop the spread of communism among the young people. But what he, he did realize very late is that basically we had a new uh, phenomenon that he called Marxist Islamist. And he was right. But at the time, even the opposition thought he's exaggerating. Uh, so basically Khomeini could rally these leftist revolutionaries um, the part of the traditionalists who were worried about the orientation of society in its modernization, and um, and also some of the nationalists who thought, oh, a mullah is not important. What he he's doing is fantastic because he's unifying the nation against the Shah and American imperialism. So he and and the worst. I mean, the I think our curse was that the Soviet Union went behind behind the Ayatollah. Yeah. And without the support of the Soviet Union, I think um, he couldn't go on and, uh, and do what he did. Because the society, this consensus of the society that um, basically last, lasted until August 1979 started rapidly to unravel. And had it not been for the hostage taking, which was the symbolic act that um, signified publicly to the world the change of alliance of the new regime that went under the prote umbrella protection of the Soviet Union, um, did it all. Because the whole communist um, cells and intelligentsia and activists went behind Khomeini and um, and that guaranteed uh, uh, the survival, the, the strengthening of the regime and its survival. You know, that history answered a question that I've struggled with in, in an American context. There are, there are elements on the, the far left that are very sympathetic to the Iranian regime. And part of it is just being anti-Trump and whatever Trump says, they're on the opposite side of that. But I've never been able to fully understand the tolerance for for human rights abuses, uh, particularly the treatment of women and homosexuals and 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 artists and poets and all of these things that you document. But I, I think it must go back to this this the Marxist element in this experiment that has to work. Yes, somehow, somewhere. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know. During the revolutionary period, many young uh, communist militant women uh, were were questioning the fact that you know the veil Khomeini's um, want what will happen to women, and all the time um, they were they were hearing, but the anti-imperialist struggle and character of Khomeini's regime. Uh, 
is more important than your rights as uh, individual female. And I'm not, I was not really surprised that the Iranian communists um, somehow went behind the regime because basically it was the same totalitarian mi- mindset. Yeah. So they were closer to the Ayatollah than to Dr. Bakhtiar in a way even though many of them got killed afterward. But if you have this worldview, naturally you will be uh, drawn to this world, to a worldview that is very similar to yours. And both the communists and Khomeini's, their essence is the fight against um, individual uh, rights. And so that was an objective alliance, more than objective alliance. I think it was a sort of... Um, really a close um, ideological um, affinity. Yeah, the individual doesn't matter. It's, no. it's the collective. It's yes, the and America, and this is very interesting, because of the, the background of the coup uh, in Iran, obviously Ameri- the United States w- was um, was suspect in a way, but at the same time, the enmity with um, with the United States is not their policy, is not what they did, it's their very essence. Yeah. You know, as a body democratic body politic, that is the problem. And even recently, Khamenei, uh, when uh, when talking after the assassination of Soleimani, the Revolutionary Guards uh, um, lead, one of the Revolutionary Guard leaders, he said, America is our enemy by nature. He didn't say by policy. And I think this is a nuance that um, the left in, the, I mean the democratic left, not the totalitarian left, in the, the West should understand. Uh, and I have said it time and again, even in the trial of Dr. Bakhtiar in Paris, because um, we didn't say the rest of the story. Um, Dr. Bakhtiar left Iran in um, August 1979, in, uh, clandestinely joined my father in Paris, stayed w- in our house for a while, and then they together they launched a new opposition pro-democracy group. And in 1991, they were both assassinated by the Islamic Republic um, agents in um, in in France. Your your father was stabbed to death yes. outside of his apartment. Yes, in uh, April in Paris, 90, in Paris yeah. April 1991, and Dr. Bakhtiar was stabbed to death in his home under the nose of the French police that was guarding him, which was very suspicious. Uh, in August 1991, and some of some of them, because the public opinion in France was so scandalized by the very um, suspicious behavior of the French government, they had to negotiate with the Iranians probably to, to get one of the, uh, the, uh, the murderers of Dr. Bakhtiar. So there was a trial. And in this trial, I told them, you know, coming several thousand kilometers, killing a 76 years, stabbing a 76 years old, old man, who has no means of doing anything right now and is not a danger to the Islamic Republic, has a meaning. What, what they have been killing in this person is your democracy. 
is the idea of democracy is not a real threat uh, to the Islamic Republic. And, uh, and that the Western policymakers and public opinion had difficulty to understand until the day that Islamism became um, a problem within their own societies. Yeah. You know, they, it's always like this with democracies. They understand, but very late, and they react, but after many people have lost their lives. It's the same with the Second World War. Yeah, and this, this, uh, this very personal experience that you went through um, sort of filled in some blanks for you about the contradiction sometimes between Western democracies who say that they're for human rights, individual rights, autonomous uh, people are free versus the, the needs of the nation, nationalism, and yes. that, that contradiction. And I, I, think, I think every uh, modern democracy, including our own, struggles with that yes. um, potentially contradiction, that there's an aspiration, and I, I think the United States was very much built on that, that aspirational value that each individual matters and that each individual has control, but we, we definitely don't always get it right. But in, in France, in that instance, they went with um, expedient economic needs, I assume primarily oil, with, with Iran to look the other way. Yes. And, at, at best, look the other way. I think that has been also American, um, American policy for a long time um, because, um, as you said, my main problem then uh, that became a sort of intellectual issue and I wanted to figure it out in order to better understand democracy, the West, nation, nation states, uh, the concept of sovereignty was how come these political entities who are ruled by democratic principles within um, behave in a completely different manner and um, in their interaction with other polities, which brings to the question the, the colonialism um, and imperialism. Uh, and I did these studies. I mean, that's a long story of my academic work on the French Revolution and the terror. Um, so. My understanding of what has happened in the West is that what we thought were democracies before the World War II were national parliamentarism. So, um, yes, every individual citizen has rights and dignity. But you don't know why. Is it because they are the individuation of the nation? Or is it because they are individual and they have natural inherent rights. And I'm always interested, and the French, during their revolution, they tried to figure this out, and they, they put the notion of natural rights in their constitution. And that created such a clash with, the, uh, with their principle of sovereignty and nationhood that at the end of the revolution, after the terror, they, they put it out. Yeah. They put it out, and all the constitution, European constitutions um, had no reference to human rights, universal human rights, until after the World War II. This is when human rights was reintroduced to constitutional corp corpus of Western polities. 
Americans were more clever. They didn't, I mean, they referred to natural rights for their independence, but they didn't put it in their constitution. There were amendments and there were citizens' rights. And that's why perhaps the idea of outlaws survived in, in the political tradition of the United States until even Dick Cheney mentioned it. But then it created a crisis. But this is not... Um, well, I think, I think it's relevant. And I want to... Uh, we were talking before we, we went live. Um, you would call yourself a social democrat. And, and I would call myself a libertarian. And, and I think when you use the phrase liberal democracy, um, conservatives and even some libertarians might talk about constitutional republicanism meaning um, the, the, the autonomous individual is the basis of society, that the, the freedom of speech and the right to due process and um, essentially the right to, to live your own life as you see fit as long as you don't hurt people or take their stuff. Um, that to me is the, the opportunity for all of us that are, that are looking um, to defend human rights and, 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 and find a, a, a way that we can all get along despite of our religious or ethnic or economic differences. And the enemy, and if we accept the right-left thing, the enemy are authoritarians no matter how they've, they've framed that. It, you mentioned that uh, Khomeini's uh, personal book was his Mein Kampf. Yes. And I, I personally don't think that, that violent Marxists and, and violent Nazis. I, I don't find a fundamental difference between those ideologies because they're anti-human, they're violent, and the state comes before the individual. So I, I think there's common ground here, even though we might identify on you know who we might vote for in the next election. Yes, there is a, a fundamental common ground. If we accept that uh, individuals have rights by nature, which is an a postulate, you know, uh, and um, the state's power or anyone power, it could be also the market powers, ha has a red line, which are, are these inherent rights, uh, then I can, we can, um, we are playing on the same court, basically. Yeah. And then afterward, our differences are you know, matter of discussion and, you know, s to some people, individuals can manage alone to some. I think the state has a, has, a, has a role because we don't have the same gifts and some of us are not as clever as the others. And so solidarity within the society is Im important if we don't want to lose part of our citizenry. To fascism, basically, and those are those are policy differences. Yes, as, they are not as, fundamental as differences, as opposed to fundamental differences. Yes. And and um, once we fix the big problem, I'd love to have you back on, and we'll argue about the small problems. Yes, exactly. Um, but I want to get back to, uh, and I want to get back to like your your core thesis, which is the the crisis of legitimacy among uh, with the current Islamic regime. And I would just add one more um, point on that question of liberal democracy, the current Supreme Leader, uh, uh, pronounced Khomeini. 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 As, and 
some of us who are naive would would confuse Khomeini yes. and Khomeini. But his and I don't know if it was in response to um, Trump or if it was previous, but he says specifically that that um, and maybe it's in the context of what he refers to as American Islam that the values in the Declaration of Independence and the values personified by George Washington that's the enemy and and what he's talking about is the American aspiration towards individual autonomy and and freedom and rule of law and all these things that we're talking about. So it is, it is explicitly uh, that idea of, of the collective versus the idea of the individual. Yes, exactly. Well, the, the, the worldview, the official worldview of the Iranian regime is that, um, human beings are defined by their obligations defined by God defined by the man who has been designated by God as the leader of society. So basically, and this is where Khomeini, Khomeini become even the founder of the, not Khomeini, become even um, within the, the tra uh, Islamic tradition kind of a heretic because um, Islam, like Christianity and Judaism, um, are basically founded on God's transcendence and uh, and man and man's freedom because man must choose religion a religion or the right path and then he has he is accountable to God after death the way Khomeini and after him <coughs> uh, the depraved ideology of the regime is defining is that there is no uh, choice basically you know, and if with the Abrahamic religions you, you reject choice, you are destroying these religions. It doesn't mean anything. Then, then you are you are in another worldview. Uh, so, so that's why Western Western culture uh, and as its leadership, the United States represent the arch enemy and the great Satan, because they are based on man's autonomy, his right to decide for his life, his rights to, to seek uh, right and wrong and understand. And this is what it doesn't exist in the, in the Islamic Republic of Iran. So the Iranian people, um, at least the coalition that had gathered around Khomeini, um, had all of these aspirations for what this, this new government would look like. And he almost immediately um, started executing people and imposing um, uh, very strict limitations, uh, particularly on women. Um, he was killing the artists and poets and, and anybody that represented that individualism and, and would question that authority. But on the economic side, he was an actual socialist, so he nationalized industry. And um, that, in my mind, that may be equally the Achilles heel of this regime because, as you say, socialism doesn't deliver, deliver. economically. Yes. Um, so let's, let's fast forward because that, like, everybody, not everybody, but people are immediately disappointed and say, we didn't sign up for this, but he built a new coalition through, through violence, essentially. Yes, he did s several things. First of all, the, the first thing he did, um, he promised 
the poor people, uh, free housing, free water and electricity. I mean, his populism was unlimited. And in that way, he mobilized a a big segment of society that was completely apolitical before. And uh, he used this alliance to neutralize the elite who had been his first supporters. Uh, That's what he did. Um, and uh, and he, as you say, he started to kill people and um, impose harsh uh, harsh constraints. You know, in one of his speeches, he says, "Even in your bedroom, you are not free." And he started to implement. They started to implement this. So part of the mm, proto-Marxist Islamic young people who were not necessarily necessarily very keen on this kind of th- stuff, were so happy that capitalism was attacked, that they went along with um, it. And this lasted until the first uh, 10 years um, of the, the regime. But then communism collapsed. And all these people started to, they, their worldview collapsed. And they started and human rights of the Soviet Union. Yes, yes, you know, and they started to think because uh, then this complete collapse of communism and this ideology brought them to question their alliance with Khomeini. And he lost these people. The regime lost this young um, communist to human rights and democracy when the human rights and democracy became very fashionable even among those who were leftists before. I mean, I remember when I was young in Paris in, at the university, talking about human rights, it would be very bourgeois. These were bourgeois rights, individual rights, mm-hmm. right? And then in the 80s, late 80s and early 1990s, all of these people became human rights activists, you know? Yeah. So these people, that was a big loss for Khomeini's regime. So what remained w- were those who, who were, I, w- I was always saying, had more fascistic view of, bo- of the body politic and that the alliance between um, fascism uh, and communism under the umbrella of Khomeini had made this system very strong. So those who remained were those who were not necessarily for socialism, but they were for uh, the strong, uh, the the absolute power of the leader, uh, the obligation to accept whatever the leader said, you know. And so these people started to, so they started a sort of privatization of the economy, but they didn't do it under the rule of law. They just divided between themselves. And so they started to create side of mafia type of economic, economic, political, military units. Um, and this, the current complete um, um, catastrophic economic situation of Iran is due to this kind of proto-fascistic I don't know how to call it because because it's not even capitalism. Yeah, it's a uh, black, it's a mafia market mob. mafia yeah. m- mafia type of uh, yeah. economy. 
Explain, so people get a sense for just how desperate um, the economic situation is for an average Iranian. Uh, where, how do they live today? You know, we, we are a, a pauperizing people. Um, the, 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 the value of the Iranian real is, is, is um, has, I mean, has lost. In, in 1979, uh, the dollar, one dollar, was 70 reals. And now it's um, 130,000 reals, one dollar. So not quite Venezuelan hyperinflation, but pretty but bad. But pretty bad, yeah. yeah. Horrible. So your, your currency, particularly for, for people that hold their wealth in currency, which tends to be poor and middle class people, yes. it's devastating. Yes. They've lost everything. Yes. Yeah. And is that, uh, you, you talk about the, the crisis of legitimacy of the Islamic Republic. What What is that? So, um, um, you know, every time there, there is an uprising in the, uh, and the regime uh, uh, suppress it, people think, okay, the regime is strong. What they don't understand is this suppressed, each suppressed uprising uh, leads to a much more fundamental dissidence from the regime. And you don't see it, but you will see it 10 years later. So basically what has happened in 19, um, uh, after the death of Khomeini and the collapse of the regime, uh, the, the co communism, many of these leftists started to question um, uh, the validity of uh, Khomeini's religious theory. And from, from, from this effort came, came out a new uh, religious uh, reformed ideology that is a good news for the future of Iran, but not only the future of Iran, I think the future of um, Islam, is Muslim countries as well. Because for the first time in the history of the, um, uh, the Islamic theology, some people started to question the very validity of the Sharia as a law corpus. The nature of the divine message through the Prophet Muhammad and what must be kept out of it, what must be kept and what must, uh, we must leave out. So, and, and they have been massively inspired by Christian theology. Um, somehow the regime as, as the society, people are becoming, I mean, people are much less practicing than before the revolution, you know, and uh, the regime knows that. So what they started to, to look is how Christians um, have been fighting against secularization. So they started to communicate with Christ Christian theologians. They started to establish institute for the study of Christianity under the um, the illusion that, okay, let's see what they have done to counter, um, you know, secularism or people who don't believe anymore and things like this. But then they, be, they started to become more familiar with profound Christian theology. And this inspired many of the mullahs who started to question their own theology. So these are the positive side effects of the regime. And I think if, if the Islamic Republic um, um, f 
collapses, we will have a massive religious transformation in Iran. And another reaction of the population that also stresses and emphasizes the crisis of legitimacy is that people are converting to Christianity. And, you know, in 1979, um, under the mild regime of the Shah, um, there were Christian active in Iran. They were not they were not afraid for their lives. You know, um, uh, English Christian. We had Catholic. I went to a Catholic school, French school. In they were there. They and some people were converting. They were, in, you know, Muslim background uh, convert to Christianity in 1979 were around 500, and now. We, the, uh, it's difficult to estimate because we have house churches, clandestine house churches, but uh, they are, n the estimate vary between 300,000 and a million. Wow. Imagine these people were, f all these, um, uh, this is m mostly evangelists. Yeah, uh, evangelicals. Uh, evangelicals who are very active, have, have TV, um, and the people come outside, go to Georgia or to Turkey to for baptism, and they go back. And so, they, and these are lower middle class yeah. that are joining. The upper middle class are becoming agnostic, atheists, um, very suspicious of every religion. But also Zoroastrianism uh, has is a fantasy of the young generation who wants to revive their Iranian character as opposed to the a religion brought by war and by Arabs. Uh, so they go back to uh, the religion of Iran before uh, Islam, which was Zoroastrianism uh, that has interesting also uh, doctrinal um, uh, aspects. Uh, Baha'ism, I think, is developing, which is a um, dissident sec uh, religion from Islam, uh, where in the 19th, uh, the 19th century, some Muslims thought they need serious re doctrinal reformation, and they were blocked. So they created a new religion that is also a religion that um, advocates the separation, the complete separation of church and state. So the common trait between all these religious and cultural dissidents is an insistence on the separation of religion and state, which is for me the prerequisite for the establishment of democracy in any country. Is it, um, I think you write this, it, it's also, it's, it's a backlash against the violent authoritarianism of state Islam and the, you know, I use the phrase American Islam, which I don't suspect anyone understands what that means, and I only know that from reading your stuff, but it's, um, you could otherwise refer to that as merciful Islam, and isn't that the attraction of Christianity as well? Is that um, this is not a this is not a violent ideology. This is a, a way to 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 live your own life and to hold yourself accountable. Exactly. And American Islam from day one, Khomeini labeled um, the man from whom he had his religious. Uh, uh, accreditation, basically, who was a much more important Ayatollah than he was. His name was Ayatollah Shariat Madari, and he was staunchly against whatever Khomeini was doing, although he was, he supported the revolutionary movement towards ref reform and even a republic. Uh, 
uh, when um, the revolutionary tribunals started to kill people, he staunchly opposed it. And the um, concept of the guardianship of the theologian, which reduces every citizen into the status of a minor, uh, he also rose against that uh, in the name of human free will and in the name of Islam. And Khomeini labeled him, um, labeled his brand of Islam, American Islam, which was the traditional Islam yeah. of, in Iran. And he was defrocked and put under house arrest and uh, really persecuted. So Khomeini has always, um, whoever refers to his own mind and uh, free will and uh, r reason to oppose him, has something American. Yeah. So it should, it's a very big compliment to the United States yeah. <laughs> to embody uh, democratic values. We, we probably need to live up to that. Yes, um, the, <laughs> you do. The, is this the same cleric that was, was on Telegram? Um, no. The, tell that story. Yeah, that's yes. So um, to tell this, this story, so some of these revolutionary young clerics who supported Khomeini, uh, they started to question, and they were bolder than the traditional, the one, the one Khomeini defrocked, because they understood that, first of all, this, they are losing the societies, and society, we have questions. I mean, I wouldn't accept the veil anymore, and before I would respect someone who has the veil, now I even don't respect that person, because I think, what do you mean? why my hair should be hidden, why my body is the source of um, sin for a man, you know, why the man should not control his gaze. You know, all are these very important questions, and it goes with um, cutting of hands, you know, Lex Talionis, all of this, and they cannot avoid this issue. So they took up the, the challenge and they started to deconstruct it. And what they, they are coming up, and I found in, intellectually interesting, is that, you know, each generation of Muslim has understood and interpreted the Quran based on the knowledge of its time. And this corpus of Sharia law that we have inherited from different centuries are basically founded on, Ptolem uh, on, on Greek uh, worldview, because at the time, the science was Greek. And now our understanding of the world of nature has changed. So the way we will approach the Quranic message is based on our contemporary understanding of justice, of nature, of man, of biology, of evolution, or all of this. And so basically what they are doing, they are throwing out the whole Sharia stuff, and they are keeping only the spiritual aspect of the prophetic message. So it, is, it sounds very revolutionary, but the way the regime is reacting to the, sp uh, the is saying, uh, secularism is spreading in th uh, theological seminaries, it means that these ideas are making their way into uh, the religious uh, seminaries within Iran. 
And uh, you called American Islam or merciful Islam. The merciful Islam is exactly this, is, is an Islam that is based on um, our contemporary understanding of world, nature, man, and uh, sciences and everything, and has a spiritual um, interpretation of, of the Quran. Khomeini and his clique labeled this also American Islam again, but b- there are speak, speech, um, th- this mullah, the telegram mullah, who took it up, he was inside the country, and started uh, very fiery sermons based on this, attacking violent Islam. Um, he had two million followers on Telegram. You know, of course he has been defrocked. Yeah. He continues to speak, not as a mullah, um, but... but so, th- so they didn't jail him. They, they gave him a sentence, but... Yeah, they defrocked yeah. him. Yeah. So he's not a mullah anymore. Yeah. And they do persecute. Uh, they have a special court for the clergy, and they, have, um, they, ha- they are trying to control. But it seems that they are losing the control of their own seminaries that they are, yeah. um, they are financing. And this is a source of uh, um, your, I would call it guarded optimism. You, you think that the Iranian people, large swaths of them, are no longer supportive of this <laughs> regime. What, what's, what, what's going to happen or what needs to happen to get out of this mess? So I think we have reached the point of non re- non-return for the uh, the legitimacy of the regime. This regime has lost complete legitimacy. He the they now their own um, uh, the pure violence and terror are the the main axis of their interaction with uh, with their civil society. And their lies. So their lies are not believed anymore. Pure violence is what is um, hampering the uh, the society's, um, you know, activists, civil rights activists to organize. You. So there are now really we have two issues. One is during all this massive expo- expropriation, when uh, Khomeini mobilized the lo- lower uh, classes, the poors to his cause, but gave them property. They, you know, farmers who took the, the, the lands of their bosses and expropriated them. There, there is a whole social segment, uh, segment of the society who don't know what will happen to them if things change. And this is what makes uh, frighten them f- for change. So I think the opposition and th- those who want change needs to come up with a solution for that. But also, we have 300,000 revolutionary guards. We have mm, many hundred thousand besieges, which are demolitions. These people have advantages in the university. They have a lot of uh, finite. And these are those who, the, the, the arms of this pure violence that is exerted over the society. We need to help these people to defect. And for that, um, we, we need to be clever. These are the two big, I- are two big yeah. issues. How to win the remaining supporters of the regime who don't believe in it anymore, but 
if we propose them a way out, might join the society, and um, and then that will help us, um, you know, diminish the intensity of the violence. In three days, in four days, they killed fifteen hundred people demonstrators, and you know this is. And that really was in twenty seventeen. No, this was in in November, November. In November uprising for the uh, rise of gas uh, yeah. price. Yeah. Well, w- the one thing that that you and I agree on in terms of of helping is is that the one thing we know we can do is tell the story and make sure that more and more people understand. I think I think Americans, if you watch this, you just learned a lot uh, that I certainly didn't know. Um, your foundation, the whole the whole mission, and and the reason that that is is it primarily Farsi or is it both English? No, it's and, both. It, everything is bilingual. Yeah. But but you are speaking to the people of Iran as much yes as to anybody. the people of world. So we had two objectives. One is helping the Iranian people, uh, basically bringing the world to the to to the Iranian people, and bringing the Iranian people to the world. Yeah. That was our. Um, so how do we find how do we find your work if we want to learn so, more? So if you want to uh, learn more, you go to our website www.iranrights.org, uh, and um, we have a library. We have testimonies. You have the stories of the memorial, um, and we 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 have a database that gathers all the other organizations reports on human rights violations in Iran. Um, my recent, we will upload also my recent articles uh, on the library very soon. Yes, and I, I was going to say that uh, for anybody interested, I will share your brand new article in the Journal of Democracy um, entitled Iranians Turn Away from the Islamic Republic. I thought it was a fantastic overview of everything we just talked about and I really appreciate you taking the time, and, and no. hopefully you'll you'll join us again because I feel like there's a thousand other things to talk about. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.